Uh, when the Second World War was going on some decades ago, there was uh, a lot of people involved, but I think the perhaps the group that get the least attention, the ones that maybe deserve more attention in terms of telling the story of that war, is the French resistance. The French resistance were just a group of normal people, people who weren't happy with the Nazi takeover of their country, with the attempted tyrannical regime that was trying to take over the world. They said, no, we, we don't want to be part of that. And so they were at threat, not only from the Nazis, but also from their own people, the collaborators, the ones that said, well, let's just play it safe. Let's just go along with this, even though we don't agree with it. And they ended up kind of revealing who the resistance were. In late 1943, in the northern part of France, the resistance was taking a lot of losses. A lot of them had been imprisoned, and they were in this prison in Amiens, in northern France. The appeal went out, out uh, to Britain. Can you do something? Can you get these people out of prison? There were hundreds of them. And there was one particular date, the 19th of February, where quite a number of them were scheduled to be uh, executed. And so on the 18th of February, a group of mosquito bombers, each carrying four 500-pound bombs, took off from Britain, flew across the English Channel at about 15 feet above the water, went into France at treetop level, sometimes lower. Apparently they had to sometimes maneuver to avoid hitting kind of fence posts and, and things. They were so low. They did a little detour north to throw off the Germans if they had become aware of them. And then they came into Amiens, coming in at low level, at low speed, as slow as they could possibly do it. They dropped their bombs in such a way that they would skid along the ground, it was icy, and hit the wall and explode. But they had to be going fast enough to be able to pull out and get away rather than just crashing into the prison, which would have not served their purposes. And so they came in, some New Zealanders, then some Australians, and then the British. They took the eastern wall, the northern wall, they took out the two mess halls where the German guards were. And before they flew away, they could see hundreds of prisoners running out of the prison. The explosions had shocked the doors open, which was the plan, and 255 prisoners escaped. There were cars waiting for them. The French resistance were ready to go, and they got away. Well, some of them did. 182 were recaptured, and many of those were then executed. But the 73 that got out and stayed out over the next four months played a key role in preparing for the D-Day landings. And then, subsequent to the D-Day landings, helping the Allied forces take back the territory. Maybe that was the plan all along. It was a daring rescue. And the, the thing about daring rescues that we love as Christians is that the Bible tells us of the ultimate daring rescue. It tells the story of what God has done to rescue people trapped under the tyranny of sin. And we're in this series, we called it The Difference, and it's a series in uh, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a letter, just a document that has been preserved for us, written by a follower of Jesus 25 years after the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul, the writer, wrote this letter to this young church, and he wanted to encourage them and to help them 
And as he described Christianity, real Christianity, you can kind of feel the excitement coming off the page. Really, this section that we're looking at is focused on something that technically we might call the New Covenant. The New Covenant, I think, is the Bible's best kept secret. It's the thing that we probably should talk about a whole lot more than we do. There's a a few famous passages that talk about the New Covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and uh, Isaiah, some of those big prophet books of the Old Testament. They look forward. They say, in the future, there's going to be a day when God's going to do this thing called the New Covenant. Actually, it's not just in those books. You could go right the way back to the beginning, and in the first few books, there's anticipation that in the future, God's going to do this new thing. And then we come over to the New Testament, and it's all over the place. We just don't tend to notice it. God has done this new thing. So what is the New Covenant? We've been talking about it for the past few weeks, but we haven't actually really spelled it out. So let me just very briefly spell it out for you. What's this new thing that God has done by sending Jesus into the world? Well, maybe three parts to it would help us to understand. The first part is that God has made it possible through the death of Jesus for us to have our sins completely forgiven. Not hidden, not covered, not temporarily put to one side, but absolutely washed away completely cleansed, a a perfect, pure record. Don't we long for that? Well, we've got it in Jesus. It's an offer that he makes to us sins completely forgiven. God knows, and God has always known, that the heart of the human problem is the human heart. And so it's not enough just to give us a, a clean record because we just blow it again, but instead God has given us a new heart. Not instead, but as well as. So we've got our sins forgiven, and we are given, if we trust in God's offer, if we receive what he wants to give us, we receive a new heart, a heart that beats for him, a heart that delights to do the right thing instead of always resisting. And the third thing that God gives us, as well as our sins forgiven and new hearts, is he gives us what we've been missing from the very beginning, the presence of his spirit on the inside. The same spirit that unites the Father and Son in heaven is given to the followers of Jesus to unite us to Jesus. And so the new covenant is God's great plan. A plan to give us the forgiveness of sin. A plan to give us a brand new heart. And a plan to give us the promised spirit. I suppose if you were going to put all that together... It's a a plan to transform lives from the inside out through relationship with Jesus. God wants to transform our lives from the inside out through a personal relationship with Jesus. And so, as we've gone through this section, we've seen some of that inside to out kind of truth. In chapter 3, we read about how we can have confidence before God. How we can be bold before the world. How we are being transformed as we look at Jesus. In chapter 4 we saw how it's God that turns the lights on in human hearts. We can never convince anyone. 
But God is able to turn the lights on inside humans so that they can see how glorious and how wonderful he is. And they can see how his offer is for them personally. We saw in the second half of chapter 4 that it doesn't actually matter that we're not very impressive. It doesn't ultimately matter that we're kind of like jars of clay, fragile and cracking and broken, because actually the treasure is on the inside. It's the inside-out plan of God, the new heart and the spirit, it's inside to out. And so on the outside, we're struggling physically, emotionally, relationally. There's so much kind of struggle in this life, isn't there? And yet, maybe that's part of God's design so that the, the thing that people see when they see something different is what he's doing inside of us. And so, uh, it's not important in, in one sense how impressive we are or aren't because the treasure is on the inside. And then the bit we looked at last week at the start of chapter 5, because of this internal reality, it gives us an amazing hope because one day, the outside is going to match the inside. One day, the jars of clay, this tent as he talks about in chapter 5, we're going to put aside the tent and we're going to be given our permanent dwelling. And so we thought a little bit about this hope that we have, that this life is not the whole story. In fact, it's, it's barely an introduction to all that is to come. And so we've got this inside to out reality through a personal relationship with Jesus. And that is the new covenant. And that is good news. That's why we're so excited about Jesus, because of what he does for us. The good news, the new covenant is good news that is really worth sharing. And that's what he's going to say as we turn to chapter 5, verse 11. It's good news that is really worth sharing. Let me read to you verses 11 through to 15, just the first paragraph of this section. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so what he's saying in this paragraph is this, we are motivated to persuade others. We're motivated to persuade others. Notice in verse 11, he talks about knowing the fear of the Lord. Back in the end of the bit we looked at last week, he was giving this encouraging section, looking about, talking about the future and what's to come, and he finishes it off in verse 10 by saying that we're all going to stand before Jesus. And that's true, by the way, whether we are Christian or not Christian. The standing before Jesus as a non-Christian is absolutely terrifying. 
But this passage here is talking about we all who are Christians. And it's saying that we're going to stand before Jesus. And and it's kind of like, maybe one way to put it is that there's going to be no no strings left untied. Everything is going to be resolved. And so where there has been uh, evil or sin, it's going to be dealt with, it's going to be finished off. Where there has been, uh, you know, good things that have been done, where people have done stuff sacrificially, lovingly, by faith, trying to please him, and nobody's noticed, he's going to be able to say, I saw that, and I appreciate it. He's going to tie a bow on all the issues from this life. There's no judgment in that for us. If we have trusted Jesus, he has taken the penalty for our sin. But maybe some regrets will need to be processed. We're not going to go into eternity with lingering issues. And so that is what he's talking about in verse 10. So in verse 11 he says, knowing the fear of the Lord. That is, knowing that we live with the most important person in our world being the Lord. Our goal, as he says in verse 10, is to live to please him. And so because he is huge in our lives, we're motivated to share this message with others, to persuade others of the truth of Jesus. Then in verse 14, he gives another motivation. He says, for the love of Christ compels us. So as well as living with God as the biggest thing in our lives, we've also got the love of Christ in our hearts. That's just like, whoa, that's so powerful. Wow, he loves me so much. It just drives us to want to tell others this good news. To want to help others to know the wonder of what God has done for us. And so motivated by the fear of the Lord and by the love of Christ, what do we preach? What do we proclaim? What do we share? Not ourselves. says that in verses 12 and 13. We don't push ourselves, that would be kind of silly. No, we preach Christ. We talk about the fact that Jesus came into this world from God and he deliberately went to the cross. He died. Christians are obsessed with the cross. Not because it's some kind of lucky symbol, but because it represents what God has done for us. He died And he rose again. And that's the message that is being shared. You know what? For the past 2,000 years, that message has continued to be shared. Even as we're sat here now, somewhere in the world, there will be people listening to a radio station. Maybe a little radio they've hidden away or on their phone with earphones in so that nobody knows. But there are people listening to the message of Jesus and they're discovering the truth. There are people that are looking up websites, watching YouTube videos, discovering the truth of Jesus' death, and right the way across the world, in all corners, that's a weird phrase, isn't it? In all corners of the globe, people are hearing about Jesus. It's been happening for 2,000 years. In one place, you'll have somebody sat in a prison cell reading a Gospel of John or a New Testament. Somewhere else, you have somebody talking to their neighbor, and they're explaining to them how Jesus came and died, and and they're trusting in God. They're discovering the truth, and God is turning the lights on in human hearts. 
In other places, the Jesus movie has been projected on the side of a building. In other places, people have filled stadiums. Remember those? When you used to be possible to do that. And people preach like Billy Graham and people by their hundreds have put their trust in Jesus for 2,000 years. People who love Jesus have been convinced or motivated to persuade others because this is the most important thing there is. And so the gospel continues to spread. The good news continues to change lives. And right the way across this world, the church is continuing to grow. Even in places where it's not legal to be a Christian. Even in places where they try to stop the spread of Christianity or burn Bibles or, or you know, kill Christians or imprison them. They do everything they can and yet it keeps on spreading. It's almost like we are the resistance movement. Just normal people doing an extraordinary thing, spreading a wonderful message that the tyranny of sin does not have to have the final word. And so we are motivated to persuade others. That's what he's saying in those first verses, 11 to 15. Then we come to verses 16 down to 21. And here he says, as well as being motivated... We're also commissioned. Let's have a look at it. Let me just read to you, first of all, uh, verses 16 and 17. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What we have, when we are gripped by the reality of what the Bible teaches, by this new covenant truth, we have a new perspective on people. We don't see people the way we used to see people. It's like he says, we don't see Christ the way we used to see Christ, right? People normally think of Christ as kind of like a good teacher who did some nice things and then things went a bit wrong. And isn't it a shame that he died? Things kind of got out of hand and they, they, you know, in the end it's not a happy story. Actually, when God turns the light on in your heart, you realize, oh wait, that was God's plan all along. That was the plan for Jesus to actually die on the cross and then on the third day to rise again. He is who he claimed to be. He is God the Son living amongst us, dying for us, risen as the first raised from the dead. We see him differently. Once the gospel grips us, we see Jesus differently and therefore we also see people differently. Just think for a moment about how the world sees each other. How do we as humans naturally evaluate one another? Well, it's all about externals, isn't it? Are you wearing the right clothes, whatever the right clothes are? Are you looking the right way? Are you impressive enough? Are you educated enough? Are you successful enough? Are you fashionable either in what you're wearing or the way you're acting or the terminology you're using? Are you ticking the boxes to satisfy a judging world? What do humans come up with? We come up with great ideas like, how about we judge people based on the color of their skin? That's genius, isn't it? No, it's wrong. 
You don't judge people based on the color of their skin. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of the day that he dreamed of when his children would be judged not based on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. Judging people by the color of their skin is as wrong today as it ever was. There's new forms of it. It's still wrong. We don't judge people based on the color of their skin. We shouldn't judge people based on how athletic they are, or now, how athletic they aren't. It's wrong. It's wrong to judge people based on these external things. And so what Paul's saying here is, because of the gospel, because of understanding all of this truth about Jesus, we see people completely differently now. Doesn't matter, rich or poor, black or white, doesn't matter, you know, successful, unsuccessful, living in a mansion, homeless on the street, whatever. Whoever they are, it all comes down to verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And by implication, if anyone is not in Christ, that person is not part of the new creation yet. You see the difference? New creation is kind of Paul's language for this thing that God creates within us. Just like he created everything at the beginning, the new covenant is how he's creating, recreating, starting with our hearts. And so if somebody hears the message of Jesus, they can be in a jungle or in a prison cell, in a massive stadium, in a church like this, having a coffee with a friend, doesn't matter the circumstance. If somebody hears the message of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, how he died and rose again, when they hear that and they, they are drawn to him and they place their trust in him, they say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. I need you to, to change me. I want to be in your family. When that takes place... In that instant, that person is a new creation. They still look like a jar of clay, but now there's a treasure on the inside. Now there's something different about them. Now they are part of the new creation. If somebody hasn't trusted in Jesus, doesn't matter how much you paint the clay pot, doesn't matter how much you kind of paint it with gold and make it really, really, really pretty, you know, wearing all the coolest things and giving off all the right signals doesn't matter. If somebody is not in Christ, they're not part of the new creation. They don't have that treasure within. And so ultimately, the world comes down to that. Is somebody in Christ or still outside of him? We have a new perspective on people. C.S. Lewis, the, the chap who wrote Narnia, uh, said this. I love this quote. I'm going to read it to make sure I get it right. He says, said, there is no such thing as a boring or a mundane person in this world. Now, you might beg to differ because you know yourself, right? Or somebody else, but don't name names. No such thing. We might think someone's boring. We might think someone's mundane. Oh, that's nothing special there. He says, no, there's no such thing as a boring or a mundane person in this world. He says, if you were to see a person, a Christian, the way they will be in the future, you would be tempted to fall down and worship them. Now, he's not saying that humans are going to become God. Absolutely not. But what he's saying is that when you see a Christian cracked, fragile, broken, dying, unimpressive, 
there's a treasure on the inside. And when the outside is fixed, so that that inside can really show in God's original design. If you were to get a glimpse of the most boring Christian that you can think of, and let's say for argument's sake that it's you, all right, or me, if, it, if you got a glimpse of what they will be like after they're taken into eternity, you would be so blown away just by that individual. You would be tempted to fall down and worship them. That's, that's a powerful thought, isn't it? We judge people differently. We don't judge based on the color of skin or based on body shape or based on education or based on success or based on any of that stuff. We evaluate the world and we say, there are those who know Jesus and we're in the same family and there are those who don't yet know Jesus. And so we are motivated to persuade them because we want everybody to know Jesus. We want everybody to be in Christ. And then from verse 18 to the end, he talks about our new commission. We've got a new perspective on people. We've got a new commission from God. Verse 18, he says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God is the one that's bringing about the change. God is the one who's at work in this world, changing one life at a time, turning on the lights, one heart after another. God is doing an amazing thing, reconciling the world to himself. Reconciling is a big word, but it's a powerful one, isn't it? But reconciling means that there are two parties that are enemies of each other. Maybe they're fighting, maybe they're cold and distant, but they're separated. Reconciliation is when they are brought together. Not in an awkward kind of forced situation, but brought together as friends. And that's what we need as humans. We're separated from God. Right? God is, is this wonderful being and we think he isn't. And so what do we do as humans? We make it our primary job, it seems. Before we can even start to think about it, we already launch into it. We make it our task to replace God. To find something else that is better than him. And so we replace him with idols. We make up other religions. Maybe we uh, replace him with science or our version of it. We replace him with uh, ideologies, ideas, philosophies. We replace him with entertainment. We replace him with sports. Or we replace him with government. It's a, a human hobby to come up with God replacements. And yet God in his love looks into this world and says, I'm not going to let them keep pursuing these other things because none of those will ever satisfy. God's love for us is so great that he is the one at work reconciling us to himself. How? By sending Jesus into the world. Jesus came into the world to say, hey, let me show you what God is like. And then Jesus went to the cross in order to show us what God is like. 
to show us how much he loved us, to show us that he's not this distant, cold, difficult being that we've got to avoid at all costs or replace with anything else. Actually, when we discover what God's like, the replacements are rubbish in comparison to him. And so God is at work reconciling sworn enemies and making them friends. We sometimes sing that song, Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. That's the reconciliation. And so he says in verse, uh, where are we, 18, 19, he's given us the message of reconciliation. Look at verse 20. Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Ambassadors, what a great concept. An ambassador is a a representative of the king, right, of the government. If you got the job of being the British ambassador to, you pick your favorite country, Uruguay or somewhere, but you, you get to be the ambassador, it means that when you walk in, you are honored because you represent the British government. Her Majesty. When you walk in, you can make promises and you're connecting the government of one country to the country you're in. You're like the presence of royalty, even though you're just you. Because an ambassador is a spokesperson for the king. We're ambassadors. And we may feel in this world like we're kind of underground resistance, looking this way and that, trying to figure out what we're supposed to do. But the reality is we are ambassadors in this world, representing the King of Kings and offering reconciliation to a world that is desperately trying to replace him with other stuff. And so we implore people, we urge people, don't don't leave this, don't walk away from this, this is too important. God is too good to walk away from and replace. God sent his son into this world and he died in your place so that the punishment for your sin is taken care of. He did that because he loves you. He wants you to be in his family. He wants you to know what it is to have life when you've never really had life before. He wants you to know what it is to be in a relationship with the one who created you in the first place. And so what is this message that we give? It's really verse 21. A powerful, beautiful verse. Verse 21, little summary of the gospel. He says, for our sake, he, let me fill in the the pronouns here. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin." Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. That's a beautiful summary of the good news of Christianity. We sometimes call it the great exchange. Imagine a very, very uh, rich and royal, famous person, and then an absolute down-and-out, riddled-with-debt person. I'm not going to say which one's which. <coughs> Excuse me. But you've got a prince or a princess with lots of wealth, and you've got a pauper with nothing. 
What happens if they come together in marriage? One of them brings only sins and death and damnation. They bring their debts. They bring their, their kind of rubbish, the trash of their life, and they bring it to the wedding. And the other one brings all of their wealth, all of their standing, all of their position, all of their respectability. They bring that to the wedding. And what happens? Well, the debt is taken on and swallowed by the rich person. And the rich person's wealth and status becomes the wealth and status of the poor person. It's the great exchange. That's Christianity. That's the offer. Jesus has come into this world offering us all of his life, all of his goodness, his righteousness in exchange for what? What can we bring? Nothing good. I mean, we bring, we bring the dross of our lives. We bring the failures. We bring the sin. We bring the, the, the bad ideas and the bad judgment of others. We bring the arrogance and the pride, all the stuff that's worthy of judgment. We bring that and we go, it's kind of all I've got, Lord. And he says, I'll take it because I love you. And in exchange, let me give you all that I have and we become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. Christianity is not an invitation to get your act together. You can never achieve that, you may have noticed. You can never put things right. You can never fix it yourself. No, Christianity is an invitation to give it all over to him. And with open hands and with an open heart, receive everything that he wants to give to you. God made him who knew no sin at all to be sin. To die on that cross as if he were the epitome of sin itself and the judgment rained down on him. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. I know it's backwards. And that's exactly the point. God had a plan from the very beginning. It was a great rescue plan. A plan that involved sending his son into this world on a daring rescue mission. A mission that would cost him everything. So that undeserving normal people like us could receive everything. And that's why today... We are part of the resistance, but more than that, we're ambassadors. If we've trusted Jesus, we represent this wonderful message to a dying world. I think, based on all that we've seen over the past few weeks, and based on what we've looked at today, the new covenant, the, the, the good news of Christianity really is good news. And it really is worth sharing. Let's just pause as we finish the message and just ask ourselves really one question. Have I accepted, have I received the offer of life and righteousness from Jesus? Have I trusted him? Am I in Christ or am I still on the outside? Do I have that treasure within or is there an emptiness within? If there's still an emptiness, then I would urge you, implore you, to accept what he's offering. Place your trust in him. Ask him to forgive and cleanse and transform you. And I would encourage you to talk to one of us afterwards. And we can figure out a way that the law changes tomorrow. We can meet then. We'll figure out a way to talk it through with you. And if you ask yourself that question, have I 
accepted the offer of life that Jesus has made? Am I reconciled to God? If the answer is yes, then just pause and say, Lord, I'm an ambassador. Would you help me to realize just how amazing that is? Give me a heart constrained by the love of Christ so that I can spill to others the goodness that you have given to me. Let's just pause. I'm going to pray. And then after I've prayed, the band will come up and we'll sing our final songs just to bring the service to a close. Let's just pause first before I pray. Father, I pray for every one of us here in this building, every one of us watching at home. Lord, I pray for those who are a new creation, for those who have accepted your amazing offer of life and righteousness. I pray that we would be gripped by the wonder of being your ambassadors in this world. I pray that you would... Fill our hearts more than ever with the, the wonder of your love so that it can spill out to others, even in these next days. And Lord, I pray for any here or any at home who, who recognize maybe that there's an emptiness inside. Can't confidently say that that treasure that we've been talking about is within. I pray that by your spirit you would pursue them Make it so they can't think of anything else until they get right with you. Lord, I pray that we, as a community, would have the joy of being ambassadors together, proclaiming Christ to a world that so desperately needs him. And we thank you that the church is growing even as we sit here. Across the world, people are hearing about Jesus and the lights are going on. And Lord, we're excited about that. So thank you for this time that we've had. And as we sing uh, in response at the end of the service, we pray that it wouldn't just be singing some words, but that these words would resonate in our hearts. And that as we sing your praise and your worship, it would bring a smile to your face, just as you've brought joy to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name.